I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. The Krim family was looking for a nanny to care for their growing family and felt blessed when they found a kind woman with a terrific reference. However, appearances would prove deceiving and on a fateful October night, the family's life would change forever when Miss Krim would walk into a nightmare. This is the Yaslan Ortega story. Hi, Megan. Hey, Amy. I had so much fun camping with you last weekend. I know. Wasn't it fun to get back out there? Camping was so great. And I didn't get abducted on my run through the woods. I know. I was a little nervous when I saw the trail, but it was good. It was great. Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank Danielle Kolbaswaki for her help with the research. Thank you, Danielle. And who do we have for our patrons today, Amy? First, we'd like to thank Jerry from Boston and Michaela. Who else do we have, Megan? We have Lily Ingram, Lakshmi, and Nicole Goodman. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And it's because of listeners like you that we can continue to bring you high quality content. Thank you, everyone. We appreciate it. The case that we're going to be talking about today felt so personal to me because at the time of this event, I was working as a nanny in the same city that it happened. That's right. I always forget that you worked as a nanny. And after I had children, I hired a nanny to help my family. And this case really changed the way that process worked for me. Understood. Yaslan Ortega was born in 1962 in the Dominican Republic. She was the second youngest of eight children. In 1985, she graduated with an accounting degree and then moved to New York City where her sister was living. A decade later, she got married and would have one son named Jesus. 
The marriage only lasted a couple of years, and then she took her son and went back to the Dominican Republic. However, she would then return back to New York in search of work, leaving her four-year-old son in the care of her family. She was a good mother, though. She would travel back and forth to visit her son several times a year, and she also spoke to him daily. In 2008, she even spent a few months in the Dominican Republic with her son. While she was living in New York, she mostly lived with family in various New York City boroughs for a little while living in the Bronx and then also living in Harlem. And throughout her time in New York, she struggled to find consistent employment. She would sometimes work in factories. She would work for cleaning services. She would do various odd jobs just to stay afloat. Finally, in the spring of 2010, when Yaslin was 48 years old, she secured some steady employment. She landed a nanny position with the Krim family working for about 25 hours a week, and she was getting paid $18 an hour. And Megan, this was off the books under the table, as a lot of nanny positions are. So this is pretty good because we're talking over a decade ago, $18 an hour cash. Oh, yeah. The Krim family had recently moved to New York City from San Francisco about six months before they had met Yaslin. Now, the reason they moved is because the husband of the family, Kevin Krim, had landed a job at CNBC where he was a media executive working as a general manager. At the time, his wife Marina was pregnant with their third child. Now, Marina and Kevin had a daughter, Lucia, who they called Lulu, who was six at the time. And they also had a daughter, Nessie, who was three at the time. The couple had been married since 2003 when they met. They were both California natives. She was from Manhattan Beach and he was from Thousand Oaks. She had studied at the University of Southern California, and he had studied at Harvard. And then after college, they both ended up back in California. So they moved to New York City, and they live on the Upper West Side at 57th and Columbus. Oh, well, I know that area well. Yep. Uh, John Jay was right there. Right there. Right. Now, we know this area, Megan. It is a beautiful area. You're very close to Central Park. You're right in the heart of Manhattan. They lived on the second floor of a beautiful apartment building, and the family lived a really happy life. Marina was a stay-at-home mother mostly, but she also taught part-time art classes to children. She was a very active blogger. She had this really cute blog called, quote, Life with the Little Crim Kids. And you can find this online. I'll put it in the show notes. And this was a very cute blog where she would just document their activities and, you know, there'd be pictures and she would just talk about what the family was up to. Keep in mind, Marina was pregnant with their third child. And since Kevin did travel a lot for work, and even when he didn't travel, he would often work 12-hour days. So the family decided, you know, maybe we should hire some help. So one day while Marina was at Lulu's ballet class, she was very visibly pregnant and she was approached by a woman by the name of Cecilia Ortega. Cecilia worked as a nanny for another family in the same neighborhood that Marina lived in. Celia had told Marina about her sister Yaslin, who had previously worked as a nanny and she was looking for work and of course sang her praises that she was great with kids and I think you'd love her. The Crims soon received a letter of recommendation from a previous employer of Yaslin's and it was a glowing account of Yaslin and her work with children. This reference also spoke to the Crims and answered all their questions and really made them feel comfortable with this choice for their family. Of course, they then interviewed Yaslin, and after meeting Yaslin and hearing these references, they decided that she would be a great fit for the family. So they went ahead and hired her to care for their two soon-to-be-three children. Leo, a healthy baby boy, was born, and things were going well, and Yaslin was pretty much part of the Krim family. They even took her to the Dominican Republic to visit her family. Wow. So they paid for a nine-day trip so they could meet Yaslin's family. And also, Marina and Kevin's children were bilingual, and they thought this was a great way for them to learn Spanish. Wow, that's very generous. And remember I mentioned Marina's blog? Yeah. It was very evident from these blog posts that they really treated Yaslin like a member of the family. And she was obviously a very close 
and trusted person to the Krim family. They often referred to her as Josie. That's what the children called her. In 2012, remember I said Yaslin had a son who lived in the Dominican Republic. He moved to New York to live with her because she decided it was a good idea for him to finish high school in the States and apply to college here. Well, she had a steady income now, too, so she probably had more financial means. That's absolutely right. So she probably felt like this was a good time for him to come on over. However, some say, although this was a very happy occasion for Yaslin, this is when her stress started peaking because this is the first time that her son is in her care full time. Oh, okay, gotcha. And she also insisted that he attend private school. And private school in Manhattan is extremely expensive. So it was clear that education was very important to her. And although the family couldn't afford it, she was determined to send her child to private school. And it was also around this time that she officially became a naturalized US citizen. But things started to unravel a little bit here. The Crims had reportedly begun having issues with some of Yaslin's work performance. Yaslin had also told the Crims that she was having financial issues since Jesus arrived. And Marina really wanted to help. Again, Yaslin was like part of the family here. So Marina offered to have Yaslin do some additional house cleaning for about five hours a week to make some extra money. Now this offer infuriated Yaslin, who says that she was a nanny and not a housekeeper, and she was very insulted by this idea. But keep in mind, Marina was just trying to help. They would even hire Jesus to care for their dog sometimes. They would also tell their friends that Yaslin was available to pick up hours. So they were clearly trying to help support Yaslin's financial needs. So this sounds very innocent and actually generous, but she interpreted it as they thinking that she was superior or something. That's what it sounds like. She would say that I'm not a housekeeper. I'm a babysitter. Which in fairness was yeah, true also. Absolutely. But I could see both sides of that one. Possibly because of this stress or possibly for some other reason, Yaslin sought professional help. And on October 22nd, 2012, she saw Dr. Thomas Caffrey, who was a psychologist. Now, this was her first time seeking mental health counseling in over 30 years. When she was a teenager, one of her sisters had passed away and she experienced some mental health issues at that time and she had seeked help. So she had had a 45-minute appointment and Yaslin talked about her recent stress and anxiety. She spoke about the relationship with Jesus and her feelings of failure that went along with caring for him. She told the psychologist that she was overwhelmed by her current situation, both financially and family obligations. Now, after the session, it seemed to Dr. Caffrey that Yaslin had really gotten things off of her chest and she seemed to have felt seems to have felt better. And he suggested that she make another appointment. And he did note that she did not appear suicidal or homicidal. And there was no evidence that she was suffering from any delusions or hallucinations. Turns out she never did make that appointment. Three days after that session, on October 25th, 2012, Yaslin was working for the family on what was a seemingly normal work day. Marina had taken their three-year-old daughter, Nessie, to a swim lesson at the nearby YMCA, leaving Lulu and Leo with Yaslin as she normally would. Now, this was the plan. Yaslin would be taking the kids to a dance class for Lulu, and Marina and Nessie would meet them at the dance class afterwards, and that's where Marina would pick up the children to head home. However, Ortega never showed at the dance studio, and the dance instructor told Marina that Lulu had not been in class that day. So Yaslin did, in fact, pick up Lulu at school as she was instructed, but instead of taking her to ballet class, she headed back to the Crim's apartment. A security camera picked up Yaslin walking down the street with the two children, entering the building just before 4 p.m. Upon entering the Crim's apartment building, Yaslin asked the doorman, quote, is the mom upstairs? And the doorman had responded that Marina had left. 
The doorman thought this was a little odd because he says that Yaslin never really spoke much to him. She would just kind of go on her way. Yaslin then got into the elevator to head to the second floor apartment. At the time, there's also a neighbor who got into the elevator with the nanny and the two children. And this neighbor recalled that the children were playing around and that the little girl looked so happy. She said everything with the nanny seemed normal, but Yaslin did not say a word to her, but she just smiled and walked out of the elevator. So it was around 5 p.m. when Marina, along with Nessie, realized that Lulu never made it to dance class. So at 5.04 p.m. she had texted Yoslin, where's Lulu? There was no response. And then she sent a follow-up text in Spanish saying, where are you? To which there was no response. 16 minutes later, she texted another, where are you? No response. God, she must have been really starting to panic, I think. Yeah, so Marina thought this was pretty unusual for Yoslin because she always responded and she was always reliable. But I don't think she was panicked just yet. Marina decided to go home and check and make sure everything was okay. But on her way home, she would continue to text Ortega several times, and now she's getting increasingly concerned. She got to the building around 20 after 5 and headed up to the apartment. She says she opens the door and it was eerily quiet. All the lights were off in the house, and she looks around to see what's going on, check the rooms, check the kitchen, but she could not find the children or Yoslin. The only thing she did see was Leo's stroller in the living room with Lulu's dance backpack on top of it. So at this point, Marina, who's again still holding Nessie, her three-year-old daughter, she went back downstairs and asked the doorman if the kids and Ortega had left and if he had seen them. But the doorman said he had not seen them leave. So Marina went back to the apartment, checking again, realizing she had not checked the bathroom. Now, the bathroom was the furthest room from the apartment entrance. Mm -hmm. So when she walks in, she did notice that there was a sliver of light under the door. So she makes her way to the bathroom, screaming the children's names. And when she opened the door, she could not believe what she was seeing. She sees her two young children, fully clothed, laying in the bathtub, covered in blood, and she said she immediately knew that they were deceased. At this time, she also sees Yaslin sitting on the floor of the bathroom next to the bathtub covered in blood. As soon as Yaslin saw Marina, she began stabbing herself in the neck. And as Marina would describe it, quote, it's like a total horror movie. I walk down the hall and I see the light under the door. I see Lulu. I knew that she was dead. She's lying in the bathtub and her eyes are open. I see Leo next to her. They had blood on them. Then I see the defendant, blood all over her and eyes bugging out. All I remember saying is, quote, I hate you. She also remembered screaming and described it as, quote, it was a scream you can't imagine is even inside of you. I don't even know where it came from. I just thought I'm never going to be able to talk to them again. They are dead. I just saw my kids dead. I can't imagine the absolute horror shock. When we talk about some of these things, we talk about knowing that this happened to your child, but actually seeing this and having to live with this visual, this I and mean, the three-year-old daughter at this whole time in her mother's arms. Oh, the trauma. Yeah, this trauma they both must And have watching this woman stabbing herself alone could be quite traumatic, let alone the fact that you just saw your own children deceased. Several of the neighbors heard blood-curdling screams from outside their apartment and called 911 as Marina collapsed on the landing, wailing and screaming that her children were dead. So she lived on the second floor, but it was a landing, so the doorman was able to see her from that point. The building superintendent lived directly underneath the crims, and he had been in his first floor apartment when he heard these screams coming from the floor above him shouting, they are dead, they are dead. He ran upstairs and went into the crim's apartment, went to the bathroom, and as soon as he opened the door, he saw Yaslin turn and look right at him. She had been standing facing the bathroom mirror, covered in blood, holding a cloth to her bleeding throat. He recalled the scene, quote, I could see the tub and I could see, I would say, bodies or clothing or something. 
I could see blood. I did my best not to take my eyes off of Miss Ortega. I saw red. He described her as having, quote, the eyes of the devil. He says he quickly ran to the front door of the apartment and held it shut with both hands with his foot to steady himself. And he called down to have the police sent up to the apartment. Remember, her hus- she has a husband, Kevin. Now, yes. Kevin Krim was currently on a business trip in San Francisco, California. Now, he was scheduled to return home that evening. Marina attempted to call Kevin as she waited for the paramedics to arrive. He didn't pick up his phone and she left him several voice messages, but all she could do was scream on these voice messages. When emergency services arrived on the scene, Marina was screaming and inconsolable. They entered the apartment and found Ortega bleeding on the floor of the bathroom with knife wounds through her neck, chest, and wrists. However, she was still breathing. Unfortunately, however, the children were unable to be revived. Baby Leo had been stabbed five times and Lucia over 30 times across her neck and her body. Both of their throats were split before they were placed in the bathtub. When the paramedics arrived, the children did not have a pulse and Leo's body was already cold. As is procedure, they still attempted CPR and chest compressions, but the children had lost too much blood at this point. The children were removed from the apartment and pronounced dead upon arrival at St. Luke's Hospital in New York. Marina was escorted out of the building by authorities, holding Nessie in her arms and shielded by a white towel. She was transferred in a separate ambulance to the same hospital as the children, and upon arrival at the hospital, she was sedated. Yaslin was admitted in stable but critical condition. She had a fractured vertebrae in the process of stabbing herself in the neck, and she was placed in a medically induced coma. So, Amy, this was a bona fide attempt to kill herself, or are we going to discuss that later? I want to discuss that later, because I'm curious what you think about that. Okay. So later that evening, Kevin Crim's plane landed, and he says when he turned on his phone, he had dozens of missed calls, texts, and voicemails. Now, these texts were all saying, are you okay? And he immediately thinks, oh, I'm I'm flying. They, maybe there was a plane crash and they think something happened. Then he hears Marina's voicemail screaming inconsolable. This poor guy. I heard one account that when the plane landed, the police actually got on the plane to escort him out. And at this time, he also answered a phone call from his brother-in-law who told him something has happened to the children. Yeah, I'm glad. I actually would have hoped that someone would be there to wait for him. Oh yeah, he needed him. to, yeah. So the police escorted him to St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital where he was told that Lulu and Leo were dead and that their nanny, Yaslin Ortega, had murdered them. At this time, he was also reunited with Marina and Nessie. The police had delayed filing charges against Ortega for more than a week while she was intubated and not able to speak as her throat wounds were treated and healed. So aside from stabbing herself in the throat, she had also slit her wrists. So she would remain under police guard this whole time in the hospital, as we would expect. She did finally wake up on November 3rd. And when she woke up, she was able to be interviewed by the police at her hospital bed. She waved her right to have a lawyer present during her questioning. Oh, good. Yeah. She didn't ask why she was in the hospital or why an officer was in her hospital room. She didn't ask about the crims or the children, but she immediately complained to the detectives about Marina Krim. Really? Yep. At first, she admitted to being in the bathroom, but didn't admit to the killings. She told detectives that, quote, Marina knows what happened. Okay. Then she went on to tell the police that the crims always told her what to do and that they were always changing her schedule. She told the police how she told Marina that she needed more money, but Marina wanted her to do five hours of house cleaning every week. She told them she was a babysitter, not a housekeeper, and she also complained that when she would do things wrong, Marina would make a grunting noise to show frustration. Wow. These are very minor complaints. Yep. Just hours after the questioning, she was, not surprisingly, charged with first-degree murder in the killings of Lucia, also known as Lulu, and her brother, Leo. Yaslin's lawyer entered a plea of not guilty. By reason of insanity. So this gets a little complicated, Megan. It's already complicated, Amy. Yeah, it's going to get much more complicated. Okay. 
There was a competency hearing in 2013 to determine whether Ortega was fit to stand trial. Judge Caro agreed with the district attorney determining that Ortega was indeed fit to stand trial. Because do you know what the criteria is for competency? Yes. A defendant has to have basic knowledge of court proceedings and understand the process enough to be able to assist in their own defense. Yeah. They have to understand the nature of the charges against them and aid in their own defense. Do you know what case established that? I'm just going to tell you. Dusky v. United States in 1960. Good job, Megan. I did not remember that date. Now, for those of our listeners who are not U.S. citizens or who do not live here, we have a lot of listeners, which is awesome, from other countries. So I want to just take a moment and talk about the fact that a crucial part of due process in our country is that a defendant must be mentally competent prior to standing trial. Now, the Sixth Amendment right is the right to a fair trial. And within that, that's where this stuff kind of falls. I already mentioned what it means to be competent, but the competency hearing is much like any other court hearing. You have court-appointed mental health experts who testify, and they're also cross-examined. We don't have a jury like we do in a trial, but you have a trial judge who decides whether or not there is a finding of competency or not. Do you know what a finding of incompetency would mean for a defendant? I do. If a defendant is found incompetent, they are moved to a psychiatric facility under mental health care until such time when they are deemed competent to stand trial. Perfectly said. Thank you. And once they are deemed competent, then trial can commence. Then all court proceedings will resume unless they are never deemed competent. And we see that happen. Which has happened. Yes, where somebody will spend the rest of their life in a psychiatric facility and never get restored to competency. In fact, as a side note really quickly here, because it's relevant, Lori Vallow was just deemed incompetent to stand trial. And so- It could be years before she goes to court again. And a lot of my students, when I teach this, want to know, well, what's the difference between competency and insanity? And we're going to talk a lot about insanity in a minute. But all I will say is that competency is mental state at the time of trial. It took more than four years for the trial to begin. I'm sure you're not surprised by that, Megan. Not not at all, actually. I know that sounds like a really long time, but in really high-profile murder cases, especially where there's a possibility of insanity, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of motions, there's a lot of evaluations, there's a lot of investigative work. So it's a little longer than usual, but not totally. And Yaslin was evaluated by psychiatrists, of course, for both sides, both the defense and the prosecution, several times. To the surprise of many, in 2016, the judge offered a plea deal to Yaslin. Now, this was over the objection of the prosecution, who insisted that the only appropriate sentence was life without parole. And I would agree with that because this deal would have given her 30 years to life, which really is the minimum sentence for those two counts. Luckily, she rejected the offer. Was this during trial? This was before trial. Okay. I've not heard of that happening very often where a judge would offer a defendant a plea before a trial commences. Makes this case abnormal and and, or unique in another way. This case is unique in several ways. And you're absolutely right. That is a very, that is a very unique aspect of this case. I'm surprised she rejected the offer. I'm glad that she ended up going to trial. We'll talk about what ended up happening. But I do think that wasn't smart on her defense's side to reject that offer. Well, it's also possible that the defense gave her the offer and she rejected it. The first thing she said after was not to take responsibility. She blamed Marina. It seems like this is not a woman who is able to or willing to take I also think she probably did not do her research. It's not a successful defense strategy in most cases. Yaslin's attorneys pursued the psychiatric defense, arguing that she was mentally ill during the acts. And on the other hand, the prosecutor argued that she was of sound mind and had planned the murders and she should be held responsible. (laughs) 
The trial finally got underway in 2018 with opening statements beginning on March 1st in a Manhattan Supreme Court. So Megan, someone who was living in New York around this time, it was really crazy because most people forgot about this case. I'm sure the Krim family and those who are close to them did not, but it was such a big news story when it happened and then trial took so long and then it kind of reopened everything. The trial was expected to last a long time because there was so much here, but the trial only lasted six weeks, which is short for a case like this. Yaslan Ortega was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. And again, she would enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. So when we talk about the insanity defense, it is what is known as an affirmative defense. An affirmative defense means that the defendant is saying, yes, I did it, but something else. So we talk to our students all the time about mens rea and actus reus. Actus reus is the act, mens rea is the intent. In our system, in order to be charged with a crime, you have to have both, except there are numerous exceptions, which we always talk about, one of them being the insanity defense. So for the insanity defense, this is when a defendant is saying that they are not responsible for their actions due to an episodic or persistent psychiatric disease. And again, this is at the time of the act. Competency is at the time of the trial. Insanity is mental state at the time of the crime. Now, if an individual is found not guilty by reason of insanity, then they are involuntarily confined to a psychiatric hospital. And this could be indefinitely. It's really up to the court to decide when they are released. It's supposed to be when they are no longer severely mentally ill or no longer dangerous or both. They'll wind up with a term in these cases, especially in these famous cases, they'll wind up with a term that would be as long, if not longer, than the term of incarceration they would have received. And in fact, you know, someone like Hinckley, who attempted to assassinate Reagan, would never get out. Someone like Andrea Yates, who murdered her five children, now gets some time out, like to visit a family member supervised after 25 years. So when they actually are quite mentally ill, they do wind up staying in these places for a very long period of time. I'm going to start by talking about the prosecution's case, and then we'll move into the defense. The prosecution's opening statements argued that Yaslin felt inadequate that she could not provide for herself son in the same manner that the Crims could provide for their children. And because of that, her anxiety and stress increase, which in turn increased her resentment towards Marina. Now you can hear all of this online. The proceedings were recorded. They further argued that Yaslin deliberately harmed Lulu and Leo in order to hurt Marina. Now, the lead prosecutor, who was Stuart Silberg, he says that there's no doubt that this murder was planned. He argued that she resented the crim so much for the amount of work she had to do And because she was struggling financially, again, she had to worry about putting her son through high school and the cost of her apartment. And the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was the fact that Marina tried to help her out by offering her additional money for cleaning on top of the childcare. Now, this increased workload served to further enrage Ortega. I said that the prosecution said that she had planned this. Well, where's the evidence? Amy, I was thinking just, I, I knew you're getting there, but where's the proof? You have There's a lot of ways to show premeditation. Did yeah. they do it in any way? Well, she did get her affairs in order. She had left a bag of family heirlooms for her son. She asked her sister to raise her son well. She didn't even bring her phone to work that day. Mm. So it seems like not only was it premeditated, but it does seem like she was intending to kill herself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Marina was the first witness at Yaslin's trial. She testified that she saw no signs of mental distress with Yaslin. 
and that Yaslin had never come to her with any issues. However, she did recall a strange incident with Yaslin that had occurred a few weeks prior to the children being murdered. She told the court that Yaslin had reacted very strangely when Marina told her she was pregnant with her fourth child. So at first, she says Yaslin hugged her and was happy for her, but then when the pregnancy ultimately ended in a miscarriage, Yaslin almost got mad at her and showed no emotion and started acting a little bit different towards Marina. After testifying, a very powerful testimony. At the end, she started yelling at Yaslin, you're gross, you're disgusting. You know, it was very, as you could imagine, very emotional testimony. One of the mental health professionals reported that although Yaslin had anxiety and depression, she was not psychotic, nor did she experience a psychotic or dissociative state, and that she was perfectly able to, quote, appreciate the consequence and wrongfulness of her actions. So despite her previous claims of psychosis, this expert believed that Ortega was still able to function successfully and normally, which to him implied that she was faking. Do you know about malingering? It's faking a mental illness in front of a professional. There's actually, a, I remember we took a class in yeah. psychology and they talk about the number of ways in which you can detect malingering and how it's a little bit harder than most people might think. A lot of people believed that Yaslin was, in fact, um, malingering based on the fact that some of these earlier interviews she talked about hearing things and seeing things. And she was almost setting herself up for an insanity defense. But then she would say things that would contradict which we'll get to um, a little further into some of this trial testimony. At some point, Yaslin had said that, you know, she was hearing things, she was seeing things, the devil made her do it. But most of the time, especially early on, she would say she has no memory at all of what happened to Lulu and Leo. But this doesn't really make sense. And as the prosecution would point out, if she really had no memory of what happened to them, you would think that she would ask about them when she woke up in the hospital after she was being treated. She never asked about the children at all. And the prosecution would argue, well, this is because she knows what happens to the children and she does indeed have a memory of the event. I understand that. I don't think that's the strongest point for me yet, but... That's a point. Yeah. I found the defense a lot more interesting. So the defense argued that she suffered from severe depression and experienced paranoid delusions and hallucinations. And this possibly goes back as far as the 70s when she had her first experience with mental health issues. The defense argued that she's had mental health issues since that time and she was just never treated. The defense also claimed that Yaslin kept this to herself. So in other words, she kept her mental health issues to herself and she didn't tell anyone. However, in the weeks leading up to the murder, she was hearing voices, and she said some of these voices she believed belonged to Satan, who told her to kill the children. A few of Yaslin's friends also testified that she did seem erratic and, quote, off, complaining of shadows following her, and that there was a, quote, black man trying to break up her family. The defense also called several friends who spoke about two previous incidences of, quote, mental breakdowns. Now, this is a dated term. We no longer use this term, but really it's just a term that's used to describe a period of extreme emotional and or mental distress that prevents one from daily functioning. Mm -hmm. So her friends say she went through this in 1978 when she lost her sister and then again in 2008 when she lost a close friend. And at these times, she became paranoid and displayed some erratic behavior. Remember I mentioned there were several pretrial interviews with many different mental health professionals between the time of you know, arrest and trial. So in 2016 is when she claimed she heard these voices of the devil telling her to kill Lulu and Leo. Then she would later retract and deny she ever said that, but it was on record that she said that. Ortega said that she never heard voices in general, which is a blatant contradiction of what she had told the psychiatrist on the defense team a few years prior. 
Now, these videos were shown to the jury and they did undermine her insanity defense. I could see why the jury would have a problem with that. I totally agree. So two psychiatrists for the defense testified that Ortega had a psychotic break at the time of the murders and had entered a dissociative state. So a dissociative state is one where there's an unconscious detachment from the situation. So they're saying that she completely detached. You might recognize one of the psychiatrists who testified here. His name was Dr. Philip Resnick. Does that name sound familiar at all? Philip Resnick doesn't, but Faye Resnick does. Okay, so Philip Resnick testified in the Unabomber case and in the trial of James Holmes. Do you remember who James Holmes is? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he was the Colorado movie theater shooter, the yes, Batman. He was, yep. Yeah, so th- this is, you know. And obviously the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. The, yes, wow. of course. Yeah. So this guy is really. Long, his- long history. He's really renowned forensic psychiatrist who testifies in some pretty high profile cases. The other forensic psychiatrist who testified was Dr. Karen Rosenbaum. The prosecution grilled Dr. Rosenbaum on cross, asking her why she hadn't interviewed anyone outside of the Ortega family. Because they interviewed Ortega's niece, Jacqueline. Megan, remember that reference letter that landed Yoselin the job? Yes, and I remember the question I was going to ask you then, but go ahead. Okay, well, it turns out that it was Yoselin's niece who wrote it. But guess what? She didn't even have children, Yoselin's niece. No, I had a feeling it was a fake. I just want to say it, I did. She ended up being a, a witness for the defense, but the prosecution totally discredited her because they were like, oh, wait a minute, aren't you the one who wrote the fake reference letter and kind of started this whole thing? And if Dr. Rosenbaum was relying on someone who is already lying, then the, the credibility of the findings can be discredited That is somewhat. exactly right. Thank you for making that clear, Megan. I think the prosecution did a really good job of trying to, you know, discredit this doctor. Also, the prosecution ended up pushing her into acknowledging that Ortega never mentioned hearing voices or having visual or auditory hallucinations to either the family or the defense psychiatrist until after the killings. Okay, that's another piece of the puzzle. It goes without saying, this trial focused on the insanity defense. And that's one of the reasons the case took so long between the initial competency hearing in 2013 and the actual trial in 2018, because the defense was trying to build this case. And clearly it was falling apart for them. Ortega showed no emotion or any indication of remorse during the whole trial. I believe she shed one tear at one point, but it was when something had to do with her, not, you know, not with the murders of the children. Ortega's son, who was now 22, remember Jesus, he took the stand to testify in defense of his mother. He referred to the murder at one point as a, quote, accident. The prosecution went off on him, yelling, did you just say accident? He then corrected himself and said, oh, I mean, what happened? He basically just testified that his mother loved the children immensely and that she never confided in him that she was hearing voices or anything like that. On April 18th, 2018, after just two days of deliberations, the jury found that 55-year-old Yaslan Ortega was guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. Megan, I know we've talked about this when we were talking about the George Floyd case or the Derek Chauvin trial. How can she be simultaneously guilty of first-degree murder And also second degree murder. Can we explain this to our listeners? Because even as people who work in the field, it confuses us. It is actually confusing. And it was a question or it's it's something I've had to think about before myself. So what happens is I'll use the George Floyd as just a brief comparison. So Derek Chauvin was found guilty of second degree murder, third degree murder and manslaughter. And so, gosh, what does that mean? You know, how could he be found guilty of the same crime? And some people might say is that double jeopardy, but it's not. So essentially what that means is that like the 
convictions are merged into one if she's found guilty on all of them. It's not concurrent. It's not multiple convictions. What happens is that the highest charge for which she's convicted will be the one for which she's sentenced. If she's only convicted of, you know, second degree murder, the other ones don't apply. If she's convicted on all, she might get an appeal, let's say, on the first degree murder charge, but then second degree murder will stand. Regardless, for sentencing purposes, it all becomes the same conviction. So it's more like a strategy to ensure that this woman never sees the light of day in case there was something with the trial that they would try to appeal on grounds of something. Yep. Okay. The jury clearly rejected Ortega's defense claim of insanity and mental incompetence. We know that every state has different standards. So in New York, the defense has to prove that Ortega did not know right from wrong or understand the consequences of her actions at the time that she committed the crime. Now, this can be difficult to determine because people who have serious mental illnesses can also have an understanding of their actions. That's correct. Either way, Yaslin's found guilty. She shows no emotion. When the verdict was read, she did wipe a tear for her from her eye as she exited the courtroom. But in May 2018, the judge showed no mercy on Yaslin and sentenced her to life in prison without the possibility of parole. At the sentencing hearing, Marina and Kevin both spoke and Megan, it is, it's impossible to listen to. It's, I don't imagine there's a dry eye on the court. Nope. You can hear it online if you want to. Um, Kevin does a really beautiful tribute to the children. And, you know, both of them are just so strong when they're talking. They gave these beautiful memorials to their children and, you know, told the judge what this has done to them. Meanwhile, before receiving her sentence, Yaslan Ortega was also allowed to make a statement. She apologized for, quote, what happened. And she stated that she hoped that nobody ever has to go through what she had gone through. Wow. And she asked for forgiveness from God. Wow. <laughs> so the judge was clearly incensed by her lack of remorse and just blatant disregard for what had happened. Judge Kara, who presided over the case, he acknowledged that Ortega did have an untreated mental illness and it may have played a role in what happened that day. But the fact that she had the forethought to try and kill herself shows that she had some mental cogency and that she had some form of a plan. The judge went on to blame Yaslin and her family for not getting her the help she needed to treat her mental illness. Okay, let's end this episode on a happier note because this case is really just so brutal. After the murders, Marina and Kevin set up the Lulu and Leo Fund which is a nonprofit charity organization that offers parents and schools a creativity curriculum based on the 10 principles of creativity. Now, this is all in order to inspire, heal, and grow children through art, nature, and creativity, especially in disadvantaged communities. Now, according to Kevin Krim, the fund, quote, empowers children and adults with the skills and confidence they need to have resilience in the face of hardship and to thrive in an ever-changing world. And he explains how they started this fund in those early days to honor the creative and two brief lives of Leo and Lulu. Now, as you probably guessed, the two children loved the arts and they were very creative. And, you know, Marina was also an art teacher, so this was very important for them. On their fun social media pages, which I follow them all, the Crims post photos of Lulu and Leo, as well as photos of their new family. They have since had two more children. It was just a couple of months ago where it would have been Lulu's 15th birthday and there was a really beautiful tribute posted for her. They sound like nice people. In 2018, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed Lulu and Leo's law into practice as a direct result of the murders and specifically Yaslan Ortega's refusal to divulge pertinent mental health information and her use of the false references. 
So basically, this law makes it a crime to misrepresent a caregiver's qualifications and experiences. And this is all about guaranteeing the safety of children. I think everyone can get behind that one. Absolutely. It was really Kevin and Marina who pushed for this to happen. They're very vocal. And Kevin wrote in a post that the main goal of this law was deterrence, as well as providing a tool for prosecutors to, quote, hold dangerous people who shouldn't be around kids and their co-conspirators accountable. Because they really focused on the fact that the family knew Yaslin had mental health issues and they lied about her credentials. And those two things together really led to this tragedy. The bill makes doctoring your resume with false qualifications a misdemeanor punishable by up to six months in jail. Now, as far as I could find, Ortega is still serving her prison sentence. And of course, she has no possibility of parole. What was her diagnosis? They said she had psychotic breaks, detachment because of past trauma, but I never got like a specific diagnosis. Because they didn't have one. Yeah, I believe that it's possible that she might have had issues with her mental health. Also, let's not go ahead and say every person who has mental health issues goes on to commit this type of crime. If I had to render a judgment just based on, and I don't know this case very well or not as well as you did, but I would say she's culpable. There was certainly planning there, unhealthy coping mechanisms from a woman who had extreme, it sounds like, anger and resentment. And I think, I really think she was just very jealous of the life that her employer had. And she was sort of triggered by this event and saw everything kind of collapsing around her. But it does sound like it was premeditated. And I bet my life that no voice has told her to do it. You had asked the question a moment ago, like, what was the diagnosis that they were really hanging on? And they really just said that she suffered from severe depression and had experienced paranoid delusions and hallucinations. So they almost made it sound like it was an episodic thing more so than a regular, consistent or persistent condition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Which can happen, but I just don't see the proof in it, to be honest. You know, I always go back to like the Andrea Yates case where they were able to show that she Mm -hmm. had a long history of these psychotic delusions reported and over and over again. So... Mm -hmm. That's what I see as almost like a standard for the defense. Do you think that the system got it right? It sounds like you do. I do think the system got it right based on this information. I would probably say so. And it sounds like the crims are, you know, it sounds like while they'll never move on, they've Mm -hmm. done great things to memorialize their children. They have moved on in some ways. They just sound like a positive I, I, you know, I just give them a yeah. lot of credit. Yeah, so though, it sounds like they they did they did the thing where they brought positive out of their tragedy. Yeah. They do really amazing work at their organization called Choose Creativity, and that's powered by the Lulu and Leo Fund. And if you'd like to donate to this amazing fund, you can go to choosecreativity.org. You can also donate through their various social media, such as Facebook and Instagram. We'll also have a link in our show notes. Before we end today, I just want to take a moment. This case really highlights the importance of getting help for yourself or your loved ones who are suffering from a mental illness. If you suspect that someone close to you is experiencing difficulties managing their mental health, the first step really is to recognize the signs. As we saw in this case, Yaslin was suffering from something and she didn't seek help. She kept it to herself. And whether or not that's true, it doesn't matter. What it does is it highlights the importance of helping those who are experiencing some of these issues. So what are some of the signs of somebody who is having difficulty managing their mental health? I'm not going to read off all of them, but if you notice anyone eating or sleeping too much or too little, pulling away from people or usual activities, 
having low or no energy, having unexplained feelings of helplessness or hopelessness, smoking, drinking, or using drugs more so than they would usually, hearing voices, of course, talking about harming themselves. One of the first steps is recognizing these signs. And it's very important to express support and reassurance, showing that you are there to help someone and also connecting someone to help because sometimes people need help making that first step. Amy, can we give like one example of how someone might be able to connect another or help connect another one with help? Yeah, so I think it depends on the severity of the situation, of course, right? So if it's someone who is in extreme distress and they could be a harm to themselves or somebody else, then of course you want to connect them to emergency services who can place them in the right facility that can help them. But this can also be um, an instance, and I don't want to go on, but this can also be like when we talk about school shooters and when I teach about them, there are a lot of red flags where kids say, oh, I wish I just would have told a teacher or I heard something. So when you're saying connect to help, this could be as simple as alerting a family member, alerting a friend, alerting a teacher. Yeah, it's like New York's campaign after 9-11. If you see something, say something. Yeah, It's so simple, but so true. If you feel like somebody you know is just not quite acting like themselves, you're better safe than sorry. Of course, educating yourself and other people on mental health issues, but really just always respecting people having compassion and empathy, like just being open to helping others is a good place to start. Thank you all for listening and we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include New York Times, CNN, New York Daily News, New York Magazine, ABC News, New York Post, People Magazine, The Associated Press, Medium.com, LuluLeoFun.Kindfold.com, LittleMissLucia.LiveJournal.com, ChooseCreativity.org, and MentalHealth.gov. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.